and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Glenn Medeiros. Now, Glenn had the massive hit Nothing's Gonna Change My Love For You back in 1987. It was a cover of the George Benson song. He talks about being discovered, which version of the song he prefers. I mean, the song hit number one across the globe, but only landed at number 12 in the States. Glenn tells me why it had more success overseas than in the States, but he did have a number one song with She Ain't Worth It in the States. The duet with Bobby Brown back in 1990. He talks about some of the regrets he's had in his musical career. He did have three songs on the Karate Kid Part 3 soundtrack, which is fantastic, by the way. He talks about that. But now Glenn's an educator. He's the president of the St. Louis School in Honolulu. He talks about what made him decide to become an educator, just how long he's been doing it, and just dealing with the pandemic, being an educator, you know, obviously running a school, it's a lot different. Glenn's music is fantastic, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So, Glenn, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, so um, before we kind of look look back, um, I know 2020 was a, a crazy year, um, and you being you know, the president of you know, St. Louis School in um, Honolulu. Just talk about how last year, you know, the difficulties of running a school and how... Um, how it was for you? Uh, you know, uh, we didn't have a roadmap as to how we should handle this. And I think, so every school was in that same position. Uh, we didn't know if we would lose 30 to 40% of our student population. Uh, we didn't know exactly what would happen between the short term and the long term. Uh, but we worked really hard. We came together as a team. I'm really proud of my entire faculty, staff, and administration. I think we've handled it really well. We, we've been keeping up to date in regards to the news that's out there. Any changes from the state uh, level to the county level to the national level, we've been adjusting as we go. We, we created an emergency response team. So we meet once a week to go over um, any hot issues that may be um, that we have to deal with or, or to go over any kind of research that may be coming out in regards to what needs to be done or any kind of, uh, any, any type of adjustments in the CDC regulations and all those things. So, so anyway, it's, I, I feel very proud about how we've handled it. We, in the end, we, we actually gained more students in this process. Wow. We, our enrollment grew, which was great. And, uh, and for that reason, I actually, Halfway through the year, we gave all of our teachers a raise because we felt that oh wow, that's great. They worked really hard to get through this, and it was their efforts that led us through the whole thing. Oh, that's great! Because I mean, I come speak. I'm wearing Connecticut. My wife, you know, it seems like the teachers are always, you know, kind of crapped on a, a little bit. It's always you know, the students, and obviously students are first, but the teachers right. obviously are considered, for, I think, frontline workers. Right. I mean, they're in there and it's, you know, it doesn't seem like they get the recognition. I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, your school ha- has done that because teachers really are, you know, underappreciated, undervalued in, in this country. I totally agree with that. And I, and I, I think part of that, it has to do with just, uh, if you look at a lot of the movies that were created, uh, you know, from maybe about the eighties on every time you see, um, an educator almost every time, not not all of the time, but almost every time you'll see that, you know, the educator is like kind of um, is, is 
is kind of seen as you know a bumbling idiot you know unfortunately right. so, whereas in the past previously a lot of teachers were looked on with the highest of, of respect so so i think society has really kind of made that tough on teachers and i know that personally as a former teacher myself yeah. uh and uh but at the same time i do know a lot of our students really look up to our teachers and their, their mentors to them and uh, but but there is this constant battle of what uh, you know teachers are seen as in the media as opposed to uh, you know what what they're seen in, in real life. Uh, so, uh, but but that's a constant struggle. But we tried to we provided the arrays in the middle of the year, and then we also you know when you're teaching at a at a private school, uh, one of the benefits is that you they will have uh, pretty much the, the school will provide free tuition for at least one child. And that okay. seems to be the norm around most private schools. In our particular case, I also talked to them about, I also went to our board and we got approval to be able to uh, extend, to, to grow the, the benefits so that a second child would receive 50% off and, and a third child 50% off. And then our grandchild 50% off. And I know that sounds like a large amount of money that the school's investing, but in reality, I, uh, as when we did our numbers, it ended up working out so that we were, you know, we, the families would be able to benefit from these, but at the same time, the school wouldn't be losing a whole lot of money. So, so yeah. it, I, so anyway, yeah, I, I think it's very important what you shared. Uh, I think in society today, whether whether we like it or not, a lot of teachers are not seen in a real positive light. And, uh, and I think we have to do everything we can to try to change that if possible. Right. Uh, especially, you know, students are getting so much information from so many different places right. that, that uh, teaching now to me is more important than ever because students have to be able to determine what, what is close to the truth you know yeah. <laughs> and uh and i think teachers can provide that that um that that ability to be able to decipher you know, to go through uh different types of media look at it and and at least say okay you know i respect that person's opinion but they, they have the ability to take that information and come come up with their own stance Right. So I remember when both of us were close in age, all we had were textbooks and we had to go to the library. We didn't have like a phone in front of us to like search for everything. And I'm, yes. you know, my son's a junior in high school right now. And every time he works on a project, I, you know, I try to help him and he can just get any inf information. And like you said, we don't know what's true. It's, you know, it's slanted a little bit. So you yes. kind of have to decipher it, which ends up making it more work for us. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. No, no doubt about it. And I think, yeah. A lot of times what happens with young people is that they take the easy approach, you know, because right. uh, in other words, they, they don't necessarily want to do all the homework to find out what the truth is. What they'll often do is because people are young and they're, they're wanting the, their greatest desire at a young age is to connect with others. So instead of having your own set of beliefs, I think a lot of young people will just latch on to some kind of movement Right. where you have all these predetermined beliefs and, and ways in which to determine what, what is the truth. And I think that's kind of scary. Although movements have been known to do a lot of great things in society, uh, but I, I don't think anyone should ever subscribe to, you know, one 
set way of thinking. Right. Uh, I've always, I think, I think it's important for us to be independent thinkers. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think that's a challenge for all schools. Yeah, absolutely. What made you decide to become an educator? I became an educator because I had a teacher um, in elementary school that helped me to believe in myself and, and, um, and helped me to it really, really changed my life really. And, uh, and I wanted to do the same for others. And, um, and so he inspired me to want to become a teacher. And then when I did become a teacher, I wanted to, I soon looked at administrators and their jobs. I found it so fascinating that, that uh, these leaders had such great opportunity to, to make a difference in the lives of many different people. So not just students, but also teachers Mm -hmm. and, and so I found it attractive pretty early on in my teaching. And, um, and so after a certain period of time, uh, I, I started taking on some leadership roles and one thing led to another. Yeah, because my wife has been teaching for about 20 years now, has no interest in being an administrator. I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, it's like, I don't think I have the stomach or, you know, the just the, the wherewithal to, to do it. I'm like, okay, you know, you, you're, you, you know what you want to do, you know, and, and that's, that's your role. So it's, it's, it's totally fine. You just no, you know, and I, I totally respect that. Uh, people tell me all the time, they couldn't pay me enough money to be a, be an administrator. <laughs> right. right. But uh, I, I think that uh, it's, it depends for some reason or another. I like the politics of it. I, I like, you know, there's a lot of politics involved, but for me, I see it as a little bit of, okay, Here's a problem. Let's try and fix it. Yeah. And here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do. It's almost like uh, playing a game of chess, or you know, mm-hmm. you 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 want to figure out how to do it. And so that so that all people involved can at least walk away feeling positive uh, and and feeling like they can work together collaboratively. Yeah. Now, being a private school, is it a little bit easier to kind of like? not to deal with all the red tape of the thing being a public school and being, you know, part yeah. of it. I started as a public school teacher right. and, um, and I loved teaching in the public school. I thought it was great, but I didn't notice that there was a lot of red tape there. Uh, and, and so I was asked to teach a small Catholic school. And I love the fact that if I had, a, if I could create a strong argument I could walk into the principal's office. We could make a decision, and in in about a week, something's changing in the classroom. So it's really, you know, yeah. having that environment is real nice. Yeah, that's great. Whereas in the Department of Education, we'd have to, it would take months to one or two years to be able to make any kind of substantial change. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're dealing with that now with all the uh, the issues dealing with COVID and stuff like that. It's, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I feel for the, a lot of the superintendents. I mean, here in Hawaii, we have a superintendent who I thought did, you know, pretty well considering the situation. Uh, of course, I'm not I'm not privy to the innards of kind of what happens between people, but but you know the the the, the union really attacked her hard, right. and uh, and next thing you know, she she resigned, and so they're looking for another person now. And I just uh, it's it's tough out there. It yeah. is tough. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we turn the corner and uh, yeah. Are, are, are you, your school back in full, full session now? So we um, did like, 
like a lot of uh, private schools here in Hawaii, because our um, rates of, of uh, attaining the virus have always been very low. Right. Uh, we took a little bit of an aggressive approach and we, we started the school year by having our elementary school open. We looked at the numbers. We knew that even if the students were to attain the virus, um, that they're still relatively safe uh, for the most part. So we felt that if we put in strict protocols, uh, we had, uh, you know, like plastic walls, walls of plastic in between yeah. seats, uh, masks on, we had temperature checks, uh, you know, the whole thing. Uh, uh, you know, up until this point, knock on wood, there hasn't been a spread on campus. There have been people that have come to campus with the virus right. because they got it from home. But because of our protocols, it did not spread here as of this point. So, so, but we started with elementary and then a couple months in, we opened middle school. And then a month after that, we opened the high school and they're open as a choice. So people don't have to go. Right. They can still learn online if they want to. So that's worked out well. It's hard for the teachers, of course, because they have to teach online and in person. Yeah. But but I give them a lot of credit because they were able to do it. Yeah. And now it's over here, the elementary school now is five days a week. And the middle school, I think next week or two weeks are going full. And then high school right now is two days and they're still deciding whether or not to go full. Oh, wow. Wow. Which, which yeah. is, you know, obviously the high school is more at risk than, you know, the, the younger schools. So, yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about some music. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Like I said before, like my wife and big fans of you since the, the beginning, and um, I know you won a competition singing George Benson's uh, "I Know It's Gonna Change My Love for You" at mm-hmm. six years old. If I had to live my life without you near me, the days would all be empty. Would seem so long with you. I see forever, oh, so clearly. I might have been in love before, but it never felt this strong. Our dreams are young, and we both know they'll take us where we want to go. Hold me now, touch me now. I'll help you see forever too 
What was like the process, like deciding to pick that song, and just the, the whole the whole deal of winning a competition like that? Well, I, the year before, as a freshman in high school, I entered the same contest, and I was able to win the high school, you know, win at the high school level, then win at the island level, and then go to the state championships. But I had used the song "Hello" from Lionel Richie okay. as the song, and although people liked the song. It was a bit kind of relaxed and slow. Yeah. And, and I think people, I, I, I'm a ballad singer. I mean, I, right. I like to sing different types of songs, but I prefer singing ballads. And um, so I was looking for a, a ballad that moved, had a little bit of a rhythm to it. Yeah. And in listening to George Benson's records, you know, I love all of his stuff. Right. Uh, and as soon as I heard that song, I fell in love with it because it had the lyrics were really meaningful uh, and written by who I think is one of the greatest lyricists of all time, Jerry Goffin, who was, uh, was married to Carol King and, you know, right. wrote a lot of great songs together. Like, you know, we used to love me tomorrow. And, um, uh, and so, you know, great lyricist. And of course, Michael Masser uh, and being the great writer that he is musically, he doesn't write lyrics, but, his music is incredible, having written songs for Whitney Houston and Diane Ross and so forth. So uh, I fell in love with it. And I, I think it was the right song because it was a ballad, but it moved well. It had some energy to it. And, um, and you know, one thing led to another. The good thing about that song, too, is that it wasn't it, people kind of knew it in Hawaii because it, it had some life in Asia. Okay. And we have a lot of Asians here in Hawaii, so the the they knew of the song, but it wasn't this incredibly popular song because right. people saw George Benson as uh, more of a jazz artist than a pop artist. Right. And so I think because of that, he probably didn't get the kind of play that he deserved to get. But I still tell people all the time, and they don't believe me, but I do tell them, and I'm being totally honest that. <laughs> 
much prefer his version of it. Oh, stop. <laughs> I do. He's a far better singer and far better talent. But And the people that he used on the original recording are people that I ended up working with later. Um, some of the best musicians out there. Uh, you know, he used Robbie Buchanan on the keyboards, who is a Canadian key, uh, piano player who right. you know, played on most of Whitney's stuff when she was really popular. And, uh, and I mean, you just name it from, you know, John Robinson on the drums to Nathan East on the bass and uh, just really good players that played on that. And then, of course, my version was done in Hawaii for 500 bucks, you know, for, <laughs> whereas those kind of players get were getting paid triple skill. So at the time, the, just one player alone for an hour probably cost about $1,000. Right. So, so, uh, but, and you can hear the difference, you know, the, even the studio that we used here in Hawaii, we're, we're close yeah. to the type of studio that George Benson uses. So, uh, but in the end, I, I'm, I do like the version that I created, no doubt. I'm, I'm happy with it overall. Uh, but, but I don't think you can hold a candle to George Benson's version. Yeah. Right. Oh no, they're, they're both fantastic. Um, and, <laughs> And obviously a lot of people around the world loved yours because it went number one, you know, across the board, I think, except, you know, Thank the States, you. which I think was number 12. But why do you feel that it didn't have the same success in the States? If I had to live my life without you near me the days would all be empty The nights would seem so long With you I see forever, oh so clearly I might have been in love before But I never felt this strong Our dreams are young and we both know They'll take us away
Well, I, I do know the reason for that. Uh, the reason for that specifically was in, the, in every other country, we released it under a major recording label. In the United States, we released it on the independent record label that didn't really have the power to push it out. So uh, the independent record label, Amherst Records, tried their best to get it out there. And so it was released on the West Coast first. And then with the major recording label, it got picked up by a major recording label. And then they released it on the East Coast. So you didn't have the full power of the West and East Coast together. Right. So Nothing's Gonna Change My Love For You in the United States was in the top 40 the longest of any song that the particular year and that's because it, again it was released on one side and then the other side yeah uh, but yeah a lot of it has to do I, I i firmly believe that if the song had been released on a major record label from day one it would have done what what it did elsewhere uh you know in most countries it went to number one right um most countries it was at number one for you know at least a couple of weeks or so um in England, I think it was on number one for about five weeks. Uh, you know, in, in uh, a lot of the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, mm -hmm. and then France. But again, a lot of it too, I think, was the music video that we did. Right. Uh, the, yeah. the music video, you know, me being from Hawaii and not really thinking about it all that much. You know, they said, you want to create a video? I said, yeah. So mm -hmm. I'll show you all my favorite beaches I go to. Right. And let's, <laughs> and let's do a video. And people were, I think they're... They were mesmerized by, by, you know, me being in there, falling in love with somebody. And we, I had actually chosen a, a local girl. She, you know, she's kind of a brown-skinned girl that I, th I thought I, I thought she was beautiful. She, and she, yeah. she was. And, and I don't know where she's at today, right. <laughs> unfortunately. But, yeah. but, but they thought, oh, no, no, we're going to get you like a white girl, blonde hair, you know, because I think most people will connect to that. So I said, oh, okay, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, and it ended up working out great. You know, it's uh, mm -hmm. a, a lot of people point to the video as, right. as, uh, and I think it was authentic because that's what, honestly, that's my, that was my life. I mean, growing up yeah. in Kauai, went to the beach every weekend. So, right. exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seeing those uh, video over so many years made me so jealous, you know, <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> being in the, you know, the cold Northeast, you know, you get a little jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did uh, did you ever hear from George Benson about your version? You know, it's kind of funny. We've we've tried to get together because he owns a home on Maui. Okay. And and so he does concerts every once in a while. And every time he goes to the concert, he always mentions my name. He says, Hey, you know, this is a song I recorded and, and Glenn recorded it, uh redid, you know, remade it and it became a big hit. And I, you know, I uh, I, I have a lot of respect for Glenn and you know that he's really, really a class act. And, right. And so, uh, you know, and I'm very positive about him, but we, we tried, he had a concert about five years ago and we're going to meet up, but it just, we couldn't make it happen because I was, uh, I think I had had, I don't know what it was, but I couldn't get out of a particular thing, but I hope right. to meet him someday. Yeah. I, I, I would probably be, if I were to meet him after all of these years, I'd probably be in a little bit of shock, you know, not only being a big fan of his, but just, you know, after all this time. Right. Absolutely. But, but besides that song, you know, the whole self, you know, title debut album was fantastic. I mean, I, there's so many great like love songs on there and great ballads. Watching over you is one of my particular favorites. Oh, thank you, know, you. Lovely won't leave me alone.
be Caught up inside a dream all my life It's always been my shadow and me Over my shoulder there's Always a voice somewhere saying I Never should try to set my free I wish that love would come And take me in her arms Show me what I've never known Where I could hold someone And words like right and wrong Just fade away like yesterday You don't realize that a teenager singing these songs, you sound like, you know, a mature crooner, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> which, which is, and I'm sure you've heard that, you know, your whole life about yeah. that. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I, my voice has kind of changed a little bit throughout uh, my career. And what I tell people is that as seniors, we tend to imitate and then at a certain mm-hmm. level after imitating, you know, your 10 favorite singers, your voice ends up becoming a combination of of your favorite singers plus you know the instrument that you were given. So uh, I think for me at the stage when I recorded my first album, I was listening to a lot of more um, kind of gritty singers, okay, uh, and a lot of R and B singing, and so I had that. Uh, I was kind of doing that thing there, and then as time went, I started listening more to the kind of the breathy singers. And I started finding myself seeing a little bit more breathy. Yeah. Whereas today I do a little combination of both, I think, depending on what the song is. But, right. but, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think a lot of people know that. I think a lot of people think that you, you have a voice and that's it. But a, a lot of singers can sing in a lot of different ways. Yeah. They're making a conscious decision to sing one particular style. Right. Were you also like writing songs then too? No. Yeah, so I, you know, I had a, my writing is connected to my life experience. Uh, so I grew up um, in a really small home and, uh, you know, we grew up on welfare and, and we weren't poor, but we were, it was, I would say probably lower middle class. And, okay. and, uh, and I tried so many times writing and I just couldn't do it. And I, I tried, I, you know, I played my piano, played the guitar. <clears throat> Everything I did sounded like something else. But it wasn't until I actually moved out um, that I started writing. Um, I don't know if it's because my house was so small that I didn't feel I had the privacy I needed. But as soon as I purchased my home, and I was, I think, about 17 or 18 when I purchased the home. Uh, and... And all of a sudden, just songs were like flying out of me. I mean, right. <laughs> so I think I needed the space 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think writing is a very private thing. Yeah. And uh, in, unless you're in the right state of mind, uh, it's difficult to do. And then I think also I needed to see other people write. And so from about 16, 17 or so, I, I would literally watch other people write songs. And then I thought, okay, I can, I can yeah. kind of do this. So I needed to see right. an example of how others do it. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then when the success of the first album, you know, touring, you know, going around the world, uh, being a teenager, like what was your support staff like traveling? Well, you know, uh, I tell people all the time that there is this misnomer that people, uh, people feel that artists, as soon as they get a hit record, they're, they're wealthy and rich. And right. that wasn't the case for me. Uh, I, uh, my parents still had to work. My father still had to work. Yeah. And so I was on the road on my own. And um, I had a manager who was very supportive. Right. Uh, and his, but he was also a business owner. So he would have me travel with his son okay. uh, often. And uh, I think I had great family support because I could call them and they're always there yeah. for me. Uh, management, I think, was supporting me well. But, um, you know, as I look back, it, it's, it's pretty amazing that I traveled to about 40 countries, you know, as a teenager. In many cases, it was on my own. And, but, you know, when you're, when you're in the middle of it and you have the opportunity to be able to sell records or perform elsewhere, and uh, you just move forward. You don't, you don't think about, oh, I don't want to do this. Or, yeah. This is too hard. Right. <laughs> but I feel pretty well supported. I have a, I have a strong family. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I, I felt supported to a certain extent. On the other hand, not having had someone that I could rely upon who had been in the music industry before. Right. I think that hurt a little bit too, because I kind of had to learn things the hard way. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I've been working really hard on a book that I'm trying to get out because um, I'm, I'm trying, I want to tell my story so that, um, so that other young people can have the opportunity to maybe not make some of the same mistakes that I did. Right. Not that I made horrible mistakes, but just, you know, things that I think uh, if I had known certain information beforehand, it would have helped. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Have you had like any of your students, you know, since you became an educator who are interested in music, pick your brain and ask for any advice? Yeah, I've had, I've had um, students. I've even had other musicians, uh, here in Hawaii, a lot of the artists will say, "Hey, you know, Dr. Maderas, you're, you're. If it wasn't for you, I, I wouldn't have known that we could actually make it outside of Hawaii." Yeah, so that's nice to hear. Even though, of yeah. course, there have been others from Hawaii that have done it. Bette Midler, uh, you know, just uh, Don Ho, of course, and right. uh, others. But, uh, but I do think that at least for a certain generation of people that grew up. They were very young when I was out there. They they saw me as an example of someone who can actually cross that bridge outside of Hawaii and, and do something. Right. 
was there like a time where any of your students like discovered that you were, you know, a, a famous recording artist? Oh yeah, uh, mostly through the videos, music videos. Right. So like, yeah. oh my God, my mother showed me this video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I tell them, you know, hey, you know, you can don't blame the hairdo on me. That everyone right. had big hair Style. in the 80s. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, your second album, you followed up called Not Me, also <laughs> fantastic. One of my favorite songs, Love Always Finds a Reason. Now, when you are choosing songs, are you solely choosing songs yourself? Is like the record company picking them for you? Like, how does that work? Uh, so my every record was different. So in the okay. first record, that was the songs were chosen by Jay Stone, who was a producer of it. Okay. He he, I, I didn't have enough confidence in myself to choose songs. I was so young. And Jay was a former program director at many different radio stations. So he had a good ear for music. And, right. and I put my trust in him on that. But the Not Me record, I started actually choosing some of the songs and okay. I started doing some writing. So right. so, um, uh, so that one there, I had more choice in regards to what I sang. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I love that particular record for me uh, because that record was the type of music that I really enjoyed. I really, not, 
I enjoyed all of doing all the songs that I've done on my records, but for that record, that was more very much me and what I what I enjoyed seeing on stage and what I enjoyed uh, performing. Yeah. Right. Were there any songs that you regretted, you know, choosing afterwards? Uh, or did I regret it that it ended up being on the record or, or, yeah, or not? Like, yeah, like on the record or not. You know, one. I I really feel, felt that the song Not Me was one of the best songs I've recorded. And um, and I had wished that it would have had the opportunity to, to be heard. But right. when, when we, all the record executives, most of them didn't see that song is something that would have the potential to become a hit but i really feel strongly about that song that 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 song's a it's a great song
I just, you know, it was just something that uh, it's just never happened. But I do think someday, in some way, hopefully, someone will be able to record that song and have some success with it. Yeah. And then the third album was a departure from the first two. Uh, another right. self-titled album. Uh, I guess the times are changing. You know, 1990 was more hip-hop. I, I mean, I would tell everyone, I mean, this is one of the big things that I have in my book. I, I write about, um, I, I, one of the things I talk about is the importance of being in a situation where you, you I think it's important that you listen to people right. and you listen to their ideas. But if those I if their ideas kind of uh, don't represent what you particularly value, yeah, then I think you have to stand up for yourself. In my particular case, uh, I had I had um, you know had some success with the second record, but um, I was on MCA Records and they really really mm-hmm. wanted me to do the hip hop thing. Right. And and at the time I had just bought my house and and I and I was worried about there was worried that maybe because the music was moving into being hip hop and grunge basically during that time yeah, uh, yeah. I had kind of felt like the, the the record companies would just go in a different direction because that's what we were facing basically they they didn't they kind of saw the kind of music I was doing as an eighties thing that they wanted to move into the nineties so it was nineteen ninety. And I made the decision to go with hip hop. I love listening to hip hop, right. but I don't see myself as a hip hop artist. So, um, so I think in doing that record, even though we got a number one song in the country, which ain't worth it. Just a waste of time One day she'll treat you nice 
uh, I think for a lot of people that were following my music, they either saw it as either like a you know sellout or um, or or um, or just me not being authentic and and honestly I'm the only one to blame for that because I said yes to it uh, and now was it a horrible decision yeah I don't know I mean I got to work with Bobby Brown yeah. I, I uh, you know travel around the world again promote the songs people enjoyed the music so I don't think it was a I don't look at it in a really negative way, but I do look at it as an as a situation that I learned from. I learned that you have to be authentically you, whether whether that's um, something that people like or don't like. It's okay. You cannot. Uh, you know, once once you start trying to be being trying to be someone that you're not, yeah. Uh, in the industry or in almost anything, it's just right. it's. Yeah, you're not going to find success. I mean, even as the president of a school, if I say, "Oh, we're this and that," but we're not really those things, yeah, the school fails. So exactly. right, yeah. So I'm sure that's probably the biggest uh, piece of advice you give potential, you know, singers or even students, really, anybody except that. No, like, no. I, I well, person. my 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 advice is unusual. I think because uh, if you look at most artists out there they always give you this, they tend to give you the same advice, which is follow your dreams. Don't let anybody stand in your way. You do what you got to do. And I, mine is a little different. I, I say, don't put all your marbles in one bag. Uh, and you want to be independent. So there, everyone has, everyone has two, three, four different passions. Right. Uh, I, I tell people, if you can afford it, go to school, go to college so that you can learn more about life. You can develop you can move from imitating to actually have developing your own sound. You open up; it opens up your mind and uh, to new things, so that when it comes time to create, you can tap tap into those things. And um, and I tell people that no, have a have a day job, and then and then get get once you get a record deal, then take a break. But at least you have a little bit of a nest egg. Right. And I think with people, if you have a nest egg and you've saved ten, twenty thousand dollars in your savings, um, and then then it's a lot easier to get be in the music industry and say, you know what, I don't want to do that. I, I'm gonna do my own thing and I'm gonna wait till I find the right it's really important. And then I uh so I, that's what I tell people, you wanna have something to fall back on. I've seen so many people in the music industry do so many things they didn't want to do because they had no choice. They were trying to survive. Right. They didn't know where the next check was coming from. They didn't know where the next meal was coming from. Yeah. And it just, and like... I was, and honestly, I was in that situation. I, I was honestly living from paycheck to paycheck because I wasn't one that spent a lot of money. I bought my house, right? but I lived a simple life. Uh, but, but in the music industry, uh, it's not a consistent stream of money. You can make no money for six months and then, and make twenty thousand dollars, and so, it, and then and then half of that ends up going to taxes or whatever it might be. Right. So, yeah, uh, it's it's not easy. Yeah, right. And then even like now, you know, the past year, like no musicians were making money. You know, mm. no one was touring. The you know record companies, no one no one buys records anymore. It's all streaming. They get pennies. Yeah. So you know, yeah. the last year had to be tough for the music industry. Yeah, you you know today. I, I saw it. I mean, honestly, I was there. I was there in the 80s. 
and I started to see all of the the um, the radio stations and the record companies merging, and I thought, "Ooh, this is not yeah. good." Right. Uh, so, and and it, so all of a sudden you see that, and then at the same time you see technology changing to a point where, at one point, if I wanted to record a song in a regular recording studio in the early '80s, you gotta have have at least 10 grand on you per song right where where technology moves so quickly but by the time it was 1990 uh you could actually purchase about fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment and create your own record yeah it might not be as strong you know as good sounding as the ones that were done in the major recording studios but these sound pretty good i mean good enough to yeah then now yeah with the with being streaming records I, I mean, I just, it's, you can, now people are selling their catalogs because they're not really making that much money mm-hmm. off of them anymore. And, uh, and, and most of the money that you can make, the big money comes from music that gets played on movies. Right. Once you get it played on movies, then, then you're making big money. So if you're, these record labels, that they have the ability to take the songs and put them into movies. Mm-hmm. Because they also own the the, the uh, movie studios and 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 uh, so when they all merged in the eighties, yeah. so um, uh, so it's 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 tough. I, I feel for the for the young performers. At the same time, technology has allowed people to kind of cut through, uh, cut through all of the 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 traditional ways in which you you have you become popular I mean, if if somebody sees you and they they see you playing the guitar and singing you, you know you could skyrocket into success right uh, but but i don't, honestly i don't know how much money these people are making though you know you you read about people being worth so much but i, I don't know how they can make a lot of money unless they're selling a lot of records yeah there's only a few artists who do that right now <laughs> it's, yeah it's- yeah yeah. So some of them are being really smart. They'll get into merchandising and stuff like that. And so uh, that's probably where the, a lot of these guys are making most of their money. But um, but even in the 80s, uh, when records were selling, a lot of these guys, you know, the, even in the 1990s, when I started kind of rubbing shoulders to some of the people in the hip-hop community, right. a lot of them were making their money, more money selling drugs than they were actually, uh, you know, with the records. So, yeah. um, and they had nice cars in the videos, but a lot of those are being rented. I mean, yeah. it's all, uh, you know, p- people were, people were doing what they had to do to, to become popular and to survive and right. to do what they love. You know, they love playing music and they, they like to do it successfully. So yeah. Eighties, nineties and what happened afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And back then I'm sure they had to you know, pay for their entourages too. And you, you, oh yeah. I mean, there's some of them. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. And I, I would feel sorry for those people because, uh, for, because they were. You could see that some of them were being taken advantage of by family right. members, cousins. And... Yeah, all all of a sudden you have a large family when you don't know how right. to people, You know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You mentioned getting songs into you know movies, and you you had three on the Karate Kid Part Three soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one and under any moon with Elizabeth Wolf Graham, written by uh, Diane Warren. You, you talked about great uh, songwriters. You know, one yeah, of the best yeah. of all time. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, being in the movie, you know, I can't help myself for the little cameo. <laughs>
Uh, I'm sure, you know, they're going to come calling to get you back in Cobra Kai, I'm sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, people have been talking about that recently. I said, oh yeah. my gosh, that's so funny. But right. no, no, I, I, um, I think, uh, you know, Diane Warren, who really is an incredible writer, very nice person. Uh, I remember her, we, we, uh, we recorded her song, Love Always Finds a Reason, uh, that was written by her and Robbie Buchanan, the keyboardist that I talked about earlier from Canada. Right. And, uh, and we, I, we uh, recorded a French version of the song that ended up going to number one in France. And I remember her walking to the studio we, as we were working on the next album. And she said, hey, Glenn, I have a surprise for you. And I said, oh, what, what is it? And she said, yeah. look, I just got a million dollar check. It's the first million dollar check I've gotten, you know. Oh, wow. and, I, and, and I want to thank you, Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know if I had anything to do with that. But she's such a great writer, my gosh, yeah. uh, and a really nice person on top of that. So, yeah. uh, but as an as an artist, you find out real early that the money is really in in the writing. Of course, yeah. uh, if you, and um, singing, yes, you can also uh, get some money there too. But a lot of it is in the performing side. And but yeah. there, there's a very you can easily lose money on the road, and most people do because it costs so much money to travel to right. have your band with you and yeah. the whole you know the whole thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, that leads me to my next question. Uh, you know, they always have those 80s revivals and stuff like that. Have they yeah. ever contacted you about doing them? Uh, my career was, I, most of the success I had as an artist was in Europe. And so I've had uh, different people try to contact me over the years uh, to, to come and do like, you know, some, you know, like they have those survivor shows, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, um, you know, it's, 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 I think, I considered doing some of those things, but I was so focused on going to college at a certain point, mm -hmm. I just kind of said, Hey, you know, I'll do interviews with you. Uh, but, but when it comes to being in a show, I just didn't want to get away from, yeah. from, I didn't want to take a break from college. Right. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard nothing's going to change love for you on the radio? Yeah, I do. I was at home and I listened to it. I used to religiously listen to uh, Casey Kasem, the top 40. And I used to have my, uh, my big stereo with a cassette player in there. So as soon as the song came out that I wanted to be a press record. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and so I was in shock when he mentioned my name. Uh, and I said, I can't believe it. Oh my God. That's that he just said my name. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so that was the first time I think I had, it's the first time I remember hearing it on the radio. I may have heard it on some of the local stations that played it early on. Right. But the, but the one memory I have is Casey Kasem. And then, mm. you know, Rick Dees was really funny because every time yeah. he mentioned my name, he would call, he called me the Hawaiian hunk, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is kind of funny because I was like skinny as like a, yeah. you know, as right. as a feather, which yeah. is, I think what he was kind of going for anyway. But, yeah. but, uh, but even Rick Dees, I used to love listening to his stuff and and, right. and then having, you know, and he he did a little, little thing where he, uh, Debbie Gibson had a hit record uh, right around the same time. So he got us, yeah. he thought it would be fun to get us together for lunch and so, or for yeah. dinner. So, right. um, so he got me together with Debbie and his mother, uh, Debbie's mother and, yeah. and myself and my manager. And that was a lot of fun. So, and Debbie and I, I remember that night we were, at the hotel just singing Greece songs and you oh, know wow. <laughs> coming back and forth and having yeah. fun. Yeah. 
during that, do you guys ever discuss about doing a duet? Yeah, that would be perfect. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I, we didn't actually discuss that, which I, I think would have been a good idea for us yeah, to do absolutely. that. Yeah. Uh, but, but uh, she was, you know, she was, Debbie was very driven from, from day one. She, right. she knew what she wanted. She's, she was writing at an early age. Her, her father was a pilot. So she, I think she flew around, you know, at no cost. She yeah. could fly anywhere she wanted to. And, uh, and she, she had a studio in her house and I, we just never got to the point where we said, let's do something together. I, I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. That would have been huge, you know, because both of you were superstars at the time, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, I, I, one day I said, hey, you know, I should, I should look her up, see how she's doing. So I, I, I looked her up on Twitter and I just kind of wrote something, hope you're doing okay. And she got right back to me and said, hey, Glenn, how you doing? Yeah. So, uh, uh, but she, she's doing well. I'm, I'm really happy for her. Yeah. She's living in Las Vegas now, I think. I think so. Yeah. 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 That's great. So what about the most interesting place you heard the song? Mm. Well, I think of all the places I would say it would be Malaysia. Okay. uh, Because, but I was on tour there and in Malaysia at the time you couldn't go on television if you had long hair they like a lot of these strict rules um and so and hearing hearing it in malaysia was a little bit of a surprise but 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 at the same time i mean you know i was happy that the song was doing well there i was happy that i had a chance to get on television and sing yeah uh but uh i do i was kind of shocked i didn't really hear the song but i was shocked when certain countries would invite me to come over to promote it okay so i remember um I've always wanted to go to Israel, but Israel, but I, and I was invited to go there, but at the time, just, you know, with some of the political things going on there, it wasn't right. really safe. And there's a part of me that wish I would have gone though, because yeah. I would have loved to be able to go. Uh, but, and then I've heard in some, some of the countries in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, uh, I was kind of surprised to hear that yeah. the, the record so well there, but yeah. we got to keep in mind that in the eighties, there was a lot of pirating going on. Uh, you know, the, as soon as I go, and if you go to a certain country, uh, you would see you see the cassette, mm-hmm. and it looks exactly like my cassette, except it's yeah. only black and white. It looks like they ran it through a Xerox machine. <laughs> yeah. So right, uh, yeah, well, that's fun. Yeah, and maybe they spell your name wrong, right? With you know one right or three n whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, last question. Uh, I'm as an educator, it must have killed you. For the title of uh, "She Ain't Worth It," right? Using the word "ain't." Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I didn't write it, so that's right, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> no, I, yeah, that's funny. That's funny. I, I, I would say, you know, I always when I became an educator, I thought to myself, "Is the music going to help or is it going to hurt me?" Yeah. And to be honest, it actually helps because, uh, you know, um. As a president, it's different. Mm-hmm. Being a president as opposed to being a principal is quite different. Principal, I, I enjoyed being a principal. You, right. you're, you're running the school. You're running the academics. You're mm-hmm. uh, uh, academically, you know, you're overseeing the teachers and the curriculum. But um, job as president is much different. A president is responsible for bringing in money to the school. We basically go right. out and raise money. Right. Uh, we're, but we're also responsible for maintaining the image of the school and and uh, the marketing and so forth so right. 
uh, believe it or not, as a as a president, uh, my my career as a singer really helps me because people who have money to give to the school, uh, it's it's kind of funny they 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 want to meet me because they want to meet me because of the music, not so much about the school. Yeah. So and and uh, and that that's okay. And then also I think people who are wealthy, uh, they. If they see another person that's successful, they, they respect that. I mean, they like the fact that I attained my doctorate degree and did the things that I've done. Right. But but they have a respect for people that have carved out a career and became famous because uh, maybe in my case, not on a large scale, but I would say fame, you can have money, but that doesn't mean you'll have fame. So I think people that have money tend to respect people that at some point in, in their lives were able to attain some type of fame. So it's helped me more than it's hurt me. And so, and that's fine. Uh, I remember when I first started as president, uh, I would say, hi, my name is, you know, uh, Damaduras. I have a doctorate degree in educational leadership mm-hmm. from the you know, University of Southern California. I, uh, here's, here's what I, uh, you know, do. And you know, I, they would say, okay, so when did you record that first song? And right. like, it, was, it was so much more important for them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to, to talk about that. So, so yeah, yeah, it's been able to work out well. It complements what I do. That's great. But Glenn, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, nothing but the best moving forward for you. And I hope thank to read you. the book whenever it comes out. Hey, thank you. So I really appreciate you. Um, your great questions that you had, and I hope I was able to answer them well for you. And good luck with your podcast. And a special thanks to Glenn for joining me today. And if you only know a couple songs of Glenn's, go check out his music. It's streaming on Spotify. And if you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the first Noel 19 or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. If you don't have iTunes, not a problem. The show can be found on SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. A new episode comes out every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then.